Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. Pat Hellman says he's a retired professor from the University of Minnesota, but in reality, in retirement, he has stayed on as an adjunct professor. Lucky for the university students and others in the industry like you and me, he is still sharing his vast knowledge. He teaches residential energy and building systems, as well as advanced building science courses. He is a co-founder of the Cold Climate Housing Program and has been an active building science researcher and has participated in many DOE Building America funded research projects. I've met Pat several times over the years, followed his research, and was very excited to have the opportunity to speak with him on the BuildCast. He has so much to share that we already are planning a second conversation. So if you have a topic that you think I should cover with Pat, please let me know and I'll try to bring it up in our next or future conversation. Thanks as always for listening to the BuildCast. I'm Robbie Schwarz with the BuildCast and I'm here with Pat uh, Hellman today, who is the professor at the University of Minnesota, St. Paul. Uh, he teaches residential energy building systems and is uh, one of the founders of the Cold Climate Housing Program at the Department of Bio Products and Biosystems Engineering at the university there. Pat, thanks so much for joining us today on BillCast. Yeah, hi, Robbie. Yeah, well, I really appreciate Good. Well, I really appreciate your time. I kind of wanted to start way back in, in your history there. Have you always been interested in buildings and uh, what got, kind of got you interested in buildings? Yeah, actually, it's been a bit of a circle. So uh, I went to college during the energy crisis or just following the energy crisis and, and really got me interested in energy and the environment and buildings. And so I started out kind of leaning towards being an engineer and then I kind of headed towards architecture and in the end, got interested in environmental studies and managed to put together my own major, I guess, at that time in school. That was allowed, and it was called environmental design. And it was really looking at this relationship between our buildings and the environment and then the environment and our buildings. <clears throat> Not so broadly as emissions and all of that, but more so, you know, how, how the microclimate around a building affects a building and, and those kinds of things and passive solar, of course. And so that's what that's my undergraduate degree. And, and I actually came out of that. And I started designing passive solar homes for folks around Iowa, a number of houses, and ultimately ended up at Iowa State University in the energy extension program. So again, really focused heavily on energy. And um, I didn't know what building science was at that time. I guess I was doing it to a certain extent without knowing it. And then I did get a master's in architectural studies because I still had this penchant for buildings and how buildings work and uh, all minor in energy systems engineering, you know, really tying in the engineering and kind of the energy focus and housing. So that, that kind of what formed my career. And then I worked at Iowa State uh, during that time. And uh, again, mostly in energy, solar energy, passive 
you know, passive homes and underground homes and a few things like that. Then I made my move to Minnesota, the Coal Climate Housing Program. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, in 1988, I went up there and uh, or up here now, but I went up and uh, did a presentation on houses as a system, and they they they, uh, they hired me. <laughs> okay. So yeah, so that, that's always been kind of my my mantra is you know the whole house is a system, which is very 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 common today, of course. Yeah. Yeah, but it required the the program was housed. It had three parts. One is kind of a traditional land grant program. Part of it was in ag engineering, part of it was in uh, housing, and part of it was in wood products, forest products department at that time, which really forced me to learn a lot more about wood, wood construction, and that led me into doing a lot more about moisture. And Pretty soon I was building out my, you know, my background, my foundation, to the point where I felt comfortable calling myself a building scientist. Great. So before you became a professor, you were were you building homes or designing the homes? Designing homes. So yeah, I just had a little uh, firm, uh, design firm, and so yeah, I designed the houses. And uh, I'd worked alongside a, a landscape architecture firm, and I worked for them occasionally. I developed uh, what was called a landscape energy audit. Back to this idea again of how do how does you know the landscape impact how a building uses energy, and uh-huh. developed this tool uh, was kind of interesting at the time. Uh, I've not really seen anything like it since, but, and then there was an architectural firm also. And so they would help me sometimes on more of the complicated structural aspects and things like that. Yeah. So kind of all three little uh, firms, if you were all located in the same place and I did my thing for a number of years, I continued to do that kind of on the side, Uh, still have a side business, although now it's more about consulting than it is about design. Yeah. And what got you interested in academia and, and becoming a professor? Yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought of that in my head when I started down this path because I worked for Energy Extension. So, And then when I came to the University of Minnesota, it was an extension position. So in land-grant universities, Iowa State, where I started, and University of Minnesota are both land-grant institutions. And, uh, you know, they make a big part, deal out of the tripart mission, teaching, research, and extension and outreach service. And so uh, I really was in the service mode uh, at Iowa State. So I was doing programs and conferences and and workshops and uh, presentations all around energy efficiency. Again, pretty much heavily focused on passive solar and a little bit active solar uh, energy for the, you know, the broader community for builders, homeowners and others. And then when I came to Minnesota, I was hired in as an extension position again. But once I kind of was, you know, came in as an you know extension professor, I guess would be the right term today. It wasn't called that then, but anyway, I was as part of a faculty, uh, and so I became very engaged in faculty activities. And we had a vice president at the university he said, "Well, this coal climate housing program is which I came into." was all outreach and extension. It's really important and valuable, but it seems to me that why wouldn't you want to partner that with a research sector and maybe think about teaching? And so at that point, we started a couple classes and and we started garnering research dollars for uh, research work. And so now we basically have this coal climate housing program that had all three kind of pieces, if you will. 
and uh, that's where I started to teach and really enjoyed it and have continued on. And yeah, that's. I guess I was I was built in to be a teacher of some kind, but I ended up being teacher both of the public, if you will, and of students. Yeah. Can you explain what the land grant universities are about? I, I haven't heard that term, I guess, before. Oh, okay. Well, basically, land grant universities were designated in the mid 1800s. Uh, yeah. There's a land grant, and I should know there's there's two congressional bills that were passed that were to form a land grant university in each state. And those land grant universities then were commissioned with this idea of having this outreach to the public, which is different than many other universities. And so every state basically has one. Uh, also the historical black colleges and universities have been kind of grandfathered into that system as part of that. So these are institutions who have a, an explicit uh, mission to help the public absorb and use research that comes from you know universities and, and beyond okay so colorado state university must be yep. the one in colorado here yeah and there usually yeah, usually it has the state university iowa state university colorado state university and others uh at the at the university of minnesota there was only one institution the university of minnesota had its kind of its public university side and its land grant side and those were merged at that time Oh, great, great. So kind of going back to uh, your professorship and, and working at the schools, it sounds like you began this process with energy and energy efficiency in mind. And did it come to you that this idea of systems thinking and, and building science or was there something out there that you saw that you wanted to bring bring that to the university? Yeah, it was it was very highly energy focused, energy centric for for sure when I started. But it was pretty clear as I moved through it, even back in the 80s, that there were other things hooked to energy. And you know, we were starting to see, for instance, uh, super insulated houses where there was incredible attention to insulation and air sealing, not like we think of it today, but a certain amount of air sealing. And and all of a sudden, the need for ventilation was pretty apparent. And now, you know, we still haven't thought about some of the finer details of combustion safety and some of that, but those things started to become quite apparent. And then in 88, I mean, we're still back in the 80s, you know, I, I, there, there's mentors, you know, that I went and listened to Joe Stebrick, for instance, and, and uh, Jim Lishkoff, they were called the Blues Brothers, and uh, they, they were coming in to talk about these moisture problems that happen in buildings and, the, and again, the house is a system concept and whatever. I got really excited about that. And then by the time I came to Minnesota in 1988, you know, there, there were certainly energy efficient buildings happening. And as we moved in the nineties, the moisture problems became more and more obvious. And so it's just like, you know, I don't want people to believe that energy causes moisture, but if we aren't careful about how we save energy, we can cause moisture problems. Yeah. So all of a sudden I became, much more an expert in moisture in buildings and and uh, moisture challenges of energy efficient buildings and ventilation to resolve indoor humidity and those kinds of things became very apparent and that's where I said I think I finally kind of put all the pieces together for you know what we call the efficient durable healthy you know resilient sustainable home some of the resilient and sustainable of course came a little later as we moved along the line yeah. recognizing some of the challenges around building resiliency and and so, you know, I kind of, I often go back to, well, 
you know, you can't have a sustainable building if it isn't efficient. You can't call it sustainable if it isn't resilient. And you can't say it's resilient and sustainable if it doesn't have good indoor air quality, right? So pretty quickly, you see these things are all bundled together. And, that, and I guess in the end, like I said, uh, kind of known for the house as a system approach, but, but I, as a building scientist, even I'm a generalist. I'm still kind of, you know, looking at that big picture and looking at, at all the connections and, and I guess that's something I'm quite proud of, actually, in my career. Yeah, interesting. What kind of building failures, I guess, did you see that led you to realize these connections? Well, moisture was most prominent. And, you know, you can start out with something just as simple as window condensation. But, you know, I came to Minnesota in 1988, just from Iowa. doesn't seem that far, far away. It's four hours up the road. Man, the window condensation problems in Minnesota when I got here were, were phenomenal and continue to get worse. You know, then we state changed window technology and that helped a little bit, or, you know, for the window, the center of the window anyway, but we're still yeah. plagued with lots and lots of edge condensation. So that was probably the most prominent one. I mean, it's not the most challenging building science issue, but, it, you know, clearly was showing signs of challenging, not just the window structure, but obviously the humidity was challenging other aspects of the building and, and indoor air quality. But then we saw some just uh, phenomenal building enclosure failures. You know, I was up in attics where, you know, the frost was two and three inches thick. And or when it warmed up, it just literally rained out on the, you know, the attic insulation, the ceiling. And I saw uh, walls that simply it, the sheathing was gone. And uh, so all of that very quickly put things in perspective and said, all right, we, we have to solve these, you know, the energy, moisture, and indoor quality problem simultaneously, not independently. Yeah. Did the cold climate housing program and, and your work help influence Minnesota in the requirements for vapor retarders and the installations? It seems yeah, like absolutely. Minnesota is the only state that actually installs vapor retarder in a meaningful and productive way. Absolutely. Yeah. The codes were starting, of course, the model energy code of 86, and then they kept stepping along and uh, co climate housing program started about the same time I came in 88. But we, yeah, we got involved in uh, code changes uh, in Minnesota, in the late 80s and early 90s. Interestingly enough, one of the things we did that might seem minor, but it's actually kind of a big thing now is the original codes required a point one perm vapor barrier vapor retarder they call it vapor barrier i call it try to use the term vapor retarder today but technically point one is a vapor barrier uh, vapor barrier on the inside warm side and we had already decided maybe that was too aggressive and so uh, we changed it to one perm now the industry of course continued to use poly polyethylene as the vapor barrier of choice and we had, I think, a strong influence on helping them appreciate the difference between vapor diffusion through the vapor retarder or vapor barrier and air leakage and what yeah. what moisture can be carried by the air leakage. And of course, much of the damage we were seeing was, you know, air driven, not diffusion driven. And so that, those two pieces came together fairly quickly and we convinced the building industry, you need an air barrier and sealing the poly to electrical boxes and, and you know sealing all the seams and doing a good job the air barrier became pretty prominent and pretty well executed and that's kind of one except it is a distinction for minnesota 
and it worked. I mean, we didn't see those same kinds of failures unless there was an obvious breach or air, air, air leak or an obvious pressure problem or something like that. Now, the flip side of this, of course, is that also started a new set of events. So now we had a good vapor barrier. Uh, we had a good air barrier on the inside. And now we were stepping up to six inches of insulation. Two by sixes had come along and everybody had basically converted to two by six construction, R19, then maybe an R21 over time. And now and everybody had converted to OSB pretty much. There was a lot of originally fiberboard sheathing or what was trademark built right, those kinds of products in the market that were semi-permeable and allowed to dry the outside. And Minnesota, of course, was prominently predominantly heating. There was air conditioning, but not a ton of it, or it wasn't used a lot. And so our walls were drying outward, and you could then afford to have a 0.1 vapor barrier on the inside and presumably still have drying potential. But now when we started going OSP, OSP is one perm, right? And a few people played with exterior foam insulation, although very thin mounts. We started having more vapor barrier or less permeable materials on the outside. And now a little leak or even a little diffusion problem could add up. And so that started to challenge how we thought about that interior. And as early as 2000, you know, I was telling builders, Poly's great, you're doing a nice job of getting an air barrier, but it's actually a little more aggressive than you probably need from a vapor diffusion standpoint. And we've got to be careful. And if you want to, the way to be most careful is get continuous exterior insulation. Well, as you know, that's been a long, <laughs> long, hard road and people aren't doing it. And so we, we have seen, you know, problems with outward wetting, not being able to dry sufficiently. But more so, we've seen the other problem of now summer moisture and people are air conditioning in Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota actually has a lot more heat and humidity than you might imagine. And so now we are seeing summer issues where the backside of the plastic in the summer was all wet. Uh, there would be mold growth on there. You'd open up a wall and you'd see you know, mold colonies all over. Uh, and that wasn't good, right? So Minnesota is still heavily interior poly-oriented, and uh, I, that, that I think needs to change. Uh, you know, certainly others around the country and in Canada, others have re recognized this can be problematic, but it's still, it, it still is the norm. And, you know, one way, like I said, it's, you kind of be proud of what they accomplish. On the other hand, they're not listening to the caution here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting, though, because being proud of what they accomplished what they accomplished, there's a disconnect in terms of their understanding of what they accomplished. Because I think yep. installing the poly, they're still in their mindset that they're dealing with vapor when in, actually they're dealing with, with air tightness and air control. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's huge. And then, you know, interestingly enough, I'd made the comment about, you know, Joe Stebrick and, and uh, James Lishkoff, they were a pair early in, in the process going around the country talking about what's called the airtight drywall house, airtight house or the airtight drywall approach, ADA. And Joe, uh, at that time, had already recognized the challenges of poly in Canada and would say, hey, we got this stuff is like I said, it could get us in trouble too. So maybe we should just use a drywall as our airtightness plane. And they had techniques for gaskets here and gaskets there and, and whatnot. And it ended up, you could create an airtight house without the membrane without the plastic, without the poly. And uh, in fact, I 
kind of edited a, the book that they used, and uh, we sold that book at Iowa State when I was at Iowa State before I left, called The Airtight House. And The Airtight Growl Approach was kind of a subtitle. And still, like I said, this confusion or disconnect between vapor diffusion and, and uh, vapor transported with air loop movement was uh, still a challenge for builders, and it still is, quite frankly, like you said. It's, yes. They just right. haven't made the connection between those. And so the current, you know, get, give credit to Joe Stubrick and Building Science Corporation, you know, this whole current concept of the four control layers, thermal, air, uh, water, vapor, I didn't necessarily put them in any particular order, but those four things is so important. And so I've been using a lot more of that. And I think it is helping builders start to separate the functions, the key functions. And I'm hopeful that it'll help them move away from the interior poly. But don't, you know, it's like everything else. Don't take the interior poly out until you have another air barrier, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. you, you, got, you got to make sure they understand the other, because they'd love probably to get rid of the poly, but they have to appreciate what it is doing for them currently and how they need to make sure that, that continues. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not a fan of the interior poly. I mean, early in my career, I didn't recognize the challenges of it. Uh, we, we you know, trained and taught builders to do it. But once, you know, we realized there were some, you know, every action has another unintended <laughs> uh, reaction. And sometimes once we realized that, we tried to soften it up and tell people there's choices. I, I'm just a huge fan today of the hybrid wall where basically you could go back to a two by four with insulation, cavity insulation, some kind of structural seating, and then a air water vapor control membrane in the middle, essentially, because you're going to then put two or three inches of insulation outside. That That's just a solid take it to the bank everyday wall. Uh, it can dry inward if the inside gets wet, dry outward you know, with furring strips, I should add, and, and so it's cladding. It can dry both directions. It should never get wet. The, the, the control, the big control air, if you will, for air and water and uh, vapor is sitting in a pretty warm, neutral place. So again, once you kind of take those four functions apart and then say, how could we put the, you know, Humpty Dumpty back together again in a different way, uh, it makes sense. Yeah, so it's really about allowing uh, the assembly to dry in both directions. In the assembly you just described, and if you're using like an OSB and that OSB is end up in, ends up in the middle of your assembly, is that not a problem or a, a place where you're not getting moisture moving across that, that assembly by diffusion enough? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is a one perm vapor retarder, and then you're going to cover it probably with something else on the outside of it for water control, right? Because you don't want water hitting the OSB. So on the end, yes, you, you presumably are going to have a layer there that's quite vapor tight, and it should be waterproof. So all of your moisture susceptible materials are inside the water control layer. So that's keeping them dry from extra water, bulk water. Uh, bulk water, yeah. Uh, the bulk water, yeah, exactly. And because they're with exterior insulation, they are basically laying in between the indoor and outdoor condition. It's really not going to be a, a situation where there's going to be condensation and or even, you know, uh, highly elevated RH or which could lead to, you know, elevated moisture content in the wood. So it's really a very nicely protected environment. And should the OSB get wet by, you know, there's an extra little leak uh, around the window or something next year, or there's a little bit of air transported con uh, moisture to the sheeting and an incredibly intense cold snap, 
uh, might get a little frost or something on the OSB, it can readily move back. So it's it it's, shouldn't have any moisture problems by any of the moisture wetting mechanisms, either you know diffusion or air leakage or capillary wicking or bulk water. So we've taken those out of the equation in theory. And if it were to get wet, it can dry inward. And back to the outside, of course, we've got the continuous insulation. And you can kind of pick you know, your choices there. You aren't going to put cellulose out there. Now they have the wood fiber that's coming on board that's treated, uh, material and a new product uh, that perhaps can be used in a moisture susceptible solution uh, uh, position. Uh, we're still looking at that. But with the furring strips on the outside and drainage and drying behind the cladding, now, the, again, the bulk water from the outside, uh, even solar-driven vapor coming inward, other things, you've got that vented relief behind the cladding. If there is moisture in that cavity, the outboard of the water control air, it's got a place to dry and, and relieve. So you really have a lot of drying potential on both sides in that, yeah. in that situation. And so that, uh, I, I hate to say, you know, you know, it's bulletproof or this is the solar bullet, uh, all of our problems. But it is a very uh, high performing from an energy perspective and a very robust, uh, safer wall system, building system uh, relative to moisture. Yeah, it seems to come down to our maybe our misunderstanding about vapor diffusion and the code placing too much emphasis on it so that we think that we need to do all these things to stop moisture movement by diffusion, whereas we're actually trying to promote moisture movement by diffusion in essence in both directions and then really stop the air leakage than the moisture that's moving with the air. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that sums it up amazingly well because, yeah, it's just been a, uh, you know, I mean, this goes way back in the code. I mean, but well before the energy uh, crisis, back into our code and vapor retarders or understanding of moisture movement, and this insistence in a way <laughs> that it was vapor diffusion when in fact it really was air leakage. We just didn't understand the role of air leakage and uh, in building and building performance. I mean, we thought of it overall. You knew if you left a window open, it was going to cause an energy problem, but we didn't think about the air leaks inherent in the closure and what impact that had on both energy performance and moisture performance. And, but you know, the, the, the tricky part here is vapor diffusion can still get you in trouble in a cold climate like Minnesota and, and beyond. And it can certainly get you in trouble in a hot human climate in a Gulf climate, right? Yeah. So vapor, you, you can't ignore vapor diffusion, but what you have to recognize as you suggested is it's not, a huge problem. We just need to throttle it down a little bit in certain locations or you know climate zones. Throttle it back so it doesn't get us in trouble, but don't take it away when it comes time that we need a little drying to occur. So yeah, it it really is a misunderstanding of the role of vapor diffusion in building enclosures. Have Have you been active at all in uh, IRC or IACC code development? Because it seems like Finally, in the 2021, they, they have a pretty good understanding with the new tables for um, exterior ventilation with certain vapor retarder systems and or continuous insulation for, for that. Yeah, I haven't been an active member or proponent or advocate inside the code development process, 
I've been involved in code over the years, both in Iowa and early in Minnesota. And it was a frustrating experience to say the least. Yeah. And uh, not always guided by good building science. And I uh, got a little frustrated with it. And I just kind of decided to step back. I still work with folks who are helping to guide the code, develop the code, give them you know, my thoughts and advice uh, for what it's worth, but haven't been actively engaged. But yes, I have been watching and you know, the, you know, the IBC and the IECC and the ARC, they've all finally kind of made this switch. I mean, they all, you know, we started to see the air tightness decrease or increased in air tightness or decrease the leakage of a building with air changes per hour. And, you know, that's still lagging, I think, a little too far behind. In the cold climates, I think we're probably pretty close or pretty good shape, but warmer climates, I think we could have a stiffer number uh, yeah. be, be, be useful. But anyway, so the air tightness was starting to be recognized. And now this also recognizing the role of diffusion, both good and bad, uh, has been recognized and has started to lead. Now, you know, as just the, the wall that I described, you know, the solution here that really helps everything is to get the continuous exterior insulation. So that's what you're seeing in the code really is a, maybe, I don't know if I dare say, a, kind of a backdoor approach to bringing in continuous exterior insulation that not only improves energy efficiency, but also reduces moisture uh, potential. And so, you know, I do, I mean, I've been promoting continuous exterior insulation, you know, for decades and pushing very hard since the 2000s because I just think it's a key solution, and especially in a cold climate, to a lot of issues. And I keep saying, builders, why why do you think the code's doing this? And they all think it's due to global climate change and energy emissions. <laughs> I say, stop a minute, stop. Yes, it does improve R value. Yes, it does improve energy performance. You know, it's a more consistent and continuous R value. And, you know, it does reduce thermal bridging. Yes, yes, yes. You know what it really does for you? It warms up the wall. It warms up all your moisture, uh, wood susceptible materials, or your moisture susceptible materials, wood primarily. It warms everything up so that you aren't going to have a, a condensation or a, a high moisture content in your wood or moisture susceptible products that could lead to, you know, as simple as mold growth or, or worse deterioration. That's why it's there. And they still haven't grabbed that. You know, I could just see the light bulb has not turned on for that element. But if it gets in the code and people start to adopt it, it's not to say there aren't challenges because back to, you know, no you know, unintended consequences is put on extra insulation, you don't take care of bulk water, you know, there, there's going to be consequences, right? So it, you, you can't, again, it's not, you can't just do this one thing or in some cases convince the market like we did maybe with, you know, airtight poly, that there there's some other things you need to pay attention to. And uh, I worry slightly about continuous exterior insulation. Like I said, it's pretty robust, but there will be some challenges on how builders install it, the applications, and how to manage bulk water when they're using ex continuous exterior insulation. One of the things I see with regards to codes that is frustrating is they require a vent space with the application of certain vapor retarder systems, but they don't define what the depth or the how big that vent space is supposed to be. Do you have any recommendations for builders? Well, I think that we're still now trying to decide if an eighth inch is enough or it needs to be three quarters or one, uh, you know, like for cladding, vented cladding. For attic ventilation, you know, it used to be two inches uh, minimum. And then we decided, well, maybe inch and a half would work. And 
So yes, there's there's a little bit of fussing around the exact dimensions, and I, I'm not going to pretend to be the expert in how fine that can be, but it doesn't take for uh, cladding ventilation. And you know, we'll come back to that because I think uh, that's the thing that's been you know it's going to help with the continuous exterior insulation is get the cladding vented a bit, and it it really only needs to be let's say three eighths of an inch. I mean, that's sufficient that you aren't going to get capillary wicking across it, but more than necessary for that. It's sufficient to get a little bit of airflow and movement, even a little diffusion drying. But practically speaking, you know, if you're a builder, you might use three quarter inch furring strips. You got three quarters. Uh, life's pretty easy. And what that also does is that this is another little piece of this is the builders see continuous exterior insulation and they say, oh, gosh, I want to have to use, you know, three inch screw or something, you know, to fasten my siding. And that that's silliness. We don't want we don't want to fasten our siding back to our studs through two or three inches of foam. We want to fasten the cladding to the furring strip, the furring strip with a nailing pattern that's half of or a third of or perhaps a quarter of your siding nailing schedule gets connected to the structure. And the siding simply gets connected to the furring strip. So, and to get the siding connection, you need three quarters of an inch. You know, more and more siding uh, applications are allowing for three quarter inch depth of penetration. Again, now you've solved another problem. So now, now you've kind of got a very practical solution, relatively inexpensive solution to getting your drainage and your siding attachment. But but all these things take time. And I, you know, I, I like this idea of the vented cladding. Always have. When the 80s, we called it the rain screen. The whole yeah. point was it really was about rain, right? Rain's going to get behind the cladding and you want to drain because we'd gone through back in the 80s, a lot of siding was wood, wood-based sidings. And a lot of them were struggling, partially because of interior moisture coming out, you know, air leakage and others, but also just because water's getting behind the cladding and window detailing or just blowing up, you know, under the, the, the siding, capillary wicking between the siding layers, et cetera, and causing a lot of bucking buckling and warping of our cladding and looked terrible. And in some cases it was bad enough that it caused the siding to deteriorate. And so it was very clear back then for wood-based sidings, we wanted a rain screen. Not even, again, not recognizing some of the other things that that actually provides for drying potential and these you know terms that were still kind of new or just being developed. And now today you look at this and go, oh, that's cavity provides a lot of robustness a lot of moisture protection. Uh, it allows the siding to sit there kind of disconnected from the building in a way. And so the siding performs better and we get a better wall. So uh, it, it's just, but that's what's really been, if you look at my career, I feel like been a lot of successes, but you know, one thing that's been challenging is, you know, how long it took to bring ventilation into buildings. And, you know, Minnesota, it's been required uh, since 2000. Actually, it was required since 1994, but for airtight homes, we had a very strange code in 1994. It's called a two-tiered code. And if you built the, what was called category one, which was more airtight, then you had to provide mechanical ventilation. And if you left it kind of whatever, I mean, it's not, not theoretically a good idea, but you know, again, back to this idea of how codes get developed, is if you left it leaky, then you didn't have to mechanical ventilation, but you had to tell the homeowners to open their windows to provide proper ventilation. Yeah. So, you know, and, and then lo and behold, there was a category, you know, two plus 
if you didn't do all the category two things and you didn't get to category one yet, you still had to either convince them to open the windows or add ventilation. So it was a strange code permutation that I will never would never uh, want anyone to go through again. But that did bring ventilation. I mean, so to speak, pretty quickly, we had ventilation. We had a lot of ventilation in Minnesota from 1994 to 2000 when it became required. And actually, it kind of leads to another point. We actually saw better ventilation systems between 1994 and 2000 than we do after 2000 when it became required. All of a sudden, then it was a price point issue for builders and, and builders who didn't want to spend as much found cheap ways to try to meet the ventilation code. And our ventilation, uh, I'll call it ventilation quality or ventilation sophisticatedness went down uh, markedly. Uh, you know, we actually went backwards in terms of the share of the market that we had uh, heat recovery or energy recovery ventilation. Now that started to change again, you know, as, as the code went through a couple more permutations in 2012 and 15, you know, now the market basically is solidly ERV, HRV equipment. It's interesting that history of what's happened in Minnesota, that same kind of frustration, I think, is echoed in the IECC across the country. Theoretically, whole house control mechanical ventilation has been required at least in, since the 2012 IECC when blower door testing became mandatory. It also yep. meant that ventilation had became mandatory. And then we still haven't adopted it in much of the country, yep. however, and interesting that way. So are, are yeah, these I, the types of- I think that resistance to me, uh, mechanical ventilation, you know, again, kind of goes back to the building industry and not understanding or appreciating why it's there. I mean, even I'll take Minnesota for is a really good example. You know, the builders were having window condensation problems. The builders were seeing, you know, some evidence of air quality issues in tight houses when they got the poly all nice and sealed up and all. So, you know, they kind of opened their mind to the idea that, yeah, boy, we maybe we do need to have better ventilation inside somehow. You know, they weren't thinking strategically about ventilation, but they recognized it. But what happened was they decided that ventilation was a fix for window condensation. So when if you have condensation, run your ventilator. If you don't have condensation window, you're okay. And you know, again, totally messed, missed and messed up what the mechanical ventilation was intended to do. And so again, I think nationally, you know, the, the National Association of Home Builders and others continue, and local home builder associations continue to fight bringing required mechanical ventilation into homes. And they say, well, why would we do that? And why would we add a hole? And why would we add air, you know, air movement to, or to, between the indoors and outdoors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they just won't step back and see the whole big picture that, yeah. well, you're building tighter envelopes. You could even build tighter envelopes if you've got controlled mechanical ventilation. Controlled mechanical ventilation means you aren't going to have periods of overventilation and gross and much longer periods of underventilation today was a result of the home building practices we have. You're gonna have controlled continuous ventilation of some type. Just haven't put the pieces together yet. It's, it's a shame, like I said, and that tension runs uh, all around the country. And, you know, I even talk to people of existing homes and go, well, you know, my house leaks, I don't need ventilation. I said, trust me, your house needs ventilation. At times, you may be middle of winter when the wind's blowing hard, maybe you don't. <laughs> But your house needs ventilation. So it's been a long struggle. You know, the, like I said, the rain screen was probably a, it's kind of a pet peeve that it's just taken so long for that concept to be adopted. 
but the ventilation struggle has even been a, a greater uh, issue, a greater concern, and I hope we're, we're close to getting that fixed. Control and predictability, that's what we're striving for there. <laughs> yeah. So are these the things that you're teaching in your courses there? Are they true building science classes that are that's happening? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, we're quite proud of our kind of our building science track, uh, you know, back to the land grant mission, the fact that, you know, the coal climate program was looking at systems and looking at energy and moisture and indoor quality all together. And as that moved into the classroom, yes, we took the first course was the house as a system, or I think it was a systems approach to residential construction as there was trademark around house as a system time probably potentially it still is but anyway systems approach uh, construct residential construction and then we realized we could take that up a notch and created a building testing and diagnostics course that was heavily based on you know building physics and building science and then ultimately we created our we call, at the time we called them advanced building science courses they're advanced relative to the other two courses i wouldn't call them advanced building science we've taken the advanced off now it's building science one one which is fundamentals and building science two, which is applications. And those are true building science courses. That are, they are heavily ener heat, energy, moisture. They aren't building science in the European definition of acoustics and fire, et cetera. So they're kind of the, the North American definition of building science, heat, air, and moisture. But they are not exclusively enclosure. I mean, I, I'm a strong proponent that the mechanical system is part of our building science challenge whether it's as simple as managing pressures and, and pressures causing issues with mechanical performance, et cetera. I, we do, uh, you know, probably a third of the course really would be mechanical systems uh, as well. So actually the courses are set up kind of a third on building science principles and building science uh, closure and building science uh, HVAC. Does the HVAC include uh, HVAC design? And not very deep no we get we get into uh you know mechanisms of airflow and you know and duct pressures and, and uh, fan duct curves and things like that so they have an appreciation for uh, how air moves through an hvac system and why duct design and things are important we don't get heavily into the hvac design a couple of things happen there one is is we drop the residential uh, moniker it used to be residential building science and technology Today, it's building science and technology uh, with the idea that the building science principles certainly can go into other building types and should. <laughs> but you, as you know, when you, you know, residential HVAC, I should add filtration in there uh, and dehumidification, those are part of HVAC. Not terribly complex, and there's not lots of different systems, but when you get into commercial, of course, it's it's a lot of things yeah. and so uh we just don't go very we don't go as deep in HVAC as i probably uh, think we should that there's still this great debate whether building science is appropriate for an undergraduate degree you know when i first started i, I had some reservation myself and that's why we call it building science and technology so you know i want them to it's it's the technology and the application of building science not pure fundamental building science I think that's a master's degree or a PhD degree, yeah. and so but, my hope yeah. my hope was people would come back and they could then you know excel at building enclosure or HVAC or, or both perhaps. But yeah, so we're still a little light. Uh, I think uh, I think we do a pretty good job on the building enclosure, a little light on uh, the HVAC. 
That's really interesting to me because it seems like you are doing so much more than almost any other institution out there, at least at introducing that first generation to building science. And we're not seeing it being taught at architecture programs, construction management programs, any of these places in a, in a meaningful and consistent way uh, there. So I, I really applaud you guys for what you got, what you're doing up there in the cold climate program. Yeah, and that's that's one another uh, kind of a career highlight, you know, as as you retire, kind of semi-retired, I'll still be teaching a little bit, uh, you know, and you start to reflect back. Really proud of the work I've done around building science education. I, you know, not only just you know walking the walk, but going out and trying to convince or provide avenues for others to embrace building science education and bring it into their program. And uh, so I, you know, I helped write a set of building science education guidelines that it kind of got put out there as if you want to look at your curriculum and see how it kind of lines up in terms of meeting certain building science elements, you know, there's kind of a matrix to do that. Clearly, Department of Energy recognized. But, you know, interestingly enough, you know, Department of Energy was a latecomer to the whole moisture control game. Uh, you know, that was it was energy. And in the 90s, there was this kind of great debate of, you know, well, no, you know, moisture problems that we were seeing as a result of making things more efficient without paying attention to the whole system. Said, no, DOE, you got to carry that, you know. And so finally, DOE embraced that. And DOE has certainly carried through over the years with Sam Rashkin and Eric Worling and others to make sure building science is incorporated back into what we do, whether it's a Building America team or whether it's, you know, supporting undergraduate, graduate education. Sam, you know, took that on and uh, and got that started with the Race to Zero, which later got merged with the Solar Decathlon. Now it's a Solar Decathlon Design Challenge and Build Challenge. And they've been, you know, insistent that building science brought into that competition with the intent that it'll get brought into the curriculum. As you suggested, architecture is still, I don't know if that's us. Construction management says, yeah, we see a lot of things, but it's a little late in the process for us to be the building science uh, managers. And so, you know, where is it? You know, and of course there's building science in the materials science side, you know, in the product supply side, but they're saying, well, we just, we, we have one material and here's our little niche and we'll do our material science without looking at the application, right? And so that's really where our program kind of, how it landed where it did was architecture. I, when I developed it in the late nineties, you know, architecture had to be part of it. Construction management had to be part of it. Material science had to be part of it. Of course, I was in a wood-oriented department, wood products oriented, yeah. which still dominates residential construction anyway. And then we had mechanical engineering, right? Those four, you know, we, we kind of tried to drop our building science program inside that, and nobody felt threatened. Uh, nobody else really wanted it, quite frankly. Uh, and that's how it got started. And that today is what needs to happen. And so, yes, Solar Decathlon is influencing architecture programs. Uh, we are seeing construction management programs come on board with that very nicely. And so mechanical engineering may be less, a little less so, but there's enough mechanical, remember, you know, it's, it's not just enclosure, enough mechanical stuff, but we're seeing mechanical engineering students being brought into the Solar Decathlon and influenced by the Solar Decathlon. So 
Uh, I, I'm a huge proponent for solar decathlon. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that we've had grand award winners at the solar decathlon twice. We would, you know, teams have, have placed first a number of times in the, in the solar decathlon. And I attribute that back to this idea of having a solid building science core. I mean, our students just get up, they just have a leg up coming out the gate, strong fundamentals of, of building science and building performance. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it seems like at least those fundamentals should be incorporated in all those other programs, you know, architecture, construction management and whatnot. Yeah, you yeah, don't have to go into the, you know, master's level or whatnot, but yeah. it's the house as a system just goes back to what you were talking <laughs> yeah. about. Yeah. yeah, and that's academic, academia. And uh, there, there's just these challenges in academia. Early on, when the building science education the idea of building science education being brought into post-secondary education. We had a lot of different groups that were pushing for that. And we thought, well, we've had, we had several national conferences or international conferences with Canada on building science education and undergraduate graduate degrees. And how are we going to move this forward? And there was a lot of thought, well, well this is pretty simple. You just go in. Most of these programs are accredited, right? Engineering programs are accredited by ABET. Uh, architecture programs are uh, accredited programs by, you know, NCARB and, and whatever. And we'll, we'll end up, we'll influence the accreditation process to incorporate some fundamental understanding of building science. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I thought that was going to be a slam dunk. It's kind of like code, changing code. Oh, my goodness. That, that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And then you see an institute and you go, well, why? And you know, some of that's history and turf and whatever, perhaps. But then you go into the institution and the finances, you know, the financial pressure in the institution is if we get more students, by whatever means, and we teach those students more classes, by whatever means, we make more money. And so there's this really strong disincentive for interdisciplinary work and interdisciplinary courses. Now, most institutions have pushed back on that and said, no, you have to have liberal education requirements and you have to do certain things right beyond your, your little uh, sphere there uh, as you see it. And so, you know, I've tried to make them broad, but it's not been good about kind of this working across uh, majors that may be connected to one another, like mechanical engineering or construction management, architecture, science and so that's been a real challenge uh, and I think it's heavily it's some of it's just protect our what we do and that's the way it's always been but it's also I think there's this financial disincentive inside of there and so quickly it became really apparent that you weren't going to change the accreditation side of this very easily and you probably weren't being able to reach into institutions and change them very easily back to kind of, you know, when you think about code, there's, you know, there's kind of prescriptive and performance, and then you get into, you know, required code versus voluntary programs. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the, the desire to all of a sudden slide towards voluntary programs, and it seems a little softer and easier. I mean, that's what the sort of Catalan is, right? It's a voluntary program that's trying to urge and merge the building science and building performance net zero energy, climate responsiveness into the curriculum. And it's having impact. I mean, there's, it's clearly, I mean, there's, there's over a hundred teams in the last several years 
uh, have competed in this and uh, several schools have embraced it fully. Uh, DOE now has the zero energy building designation, ZBD, where schools that say, hey, we're gonna take building science and building performance and zero energy serious. We're gonna integrate it directly into our curriculum, either through the solar decathlon or something similar, and get, the, get a designation. So it's just a much slower process. But, and in the end, I think sometimes the voluntary approach actually ends up with a better product, just takes longer. Wonderful, I really appreciate that insight there. I don't think we have time to go into some of the other research that you've done, but can you let us know where we can find some information about some of the other kind of fundamental research that you've done? I, I know you've done a lot with regards to foundations and basements and, and whatnot that would be great to spend another hour yeah. on, but uh, <laughs> where, where, would we, where would we go to find that? Well, fortunately, I'm not a webmaster, and we've had some challenges on the web. But if you'll just type in UMN Northern Star, you'll get to basically a web page that has a lot of our work with DOE. So in 2010, another you know highlight of my career, I had watched Department of Energy, and I'd watched the Building America program. I had fundamentally been involved in a couple of teams. Building America started actually in the 90s uh, under a different name at that time. But as that program progressed, certainly been watching it a bit with envy. And in 2010, we put together the Northern Star Partnership and were selected as a Building America team. And uh, again, that was another highlight of my career. I, I really feel good about the work we've done with Department of Energy through Building America, both the research work as well as the builder training outreach tech transfer part. And so that's why the Northern Star uh, label there. And that'll get you to our webpage and that'll have a lot of the work that we did for Department of Energy. And there's work on foundations. It's an area never would have thought that I'd be the foundation expert when I started my career, but somehow I got labeled that. And I think it's partly the, the building science challenges of foundation are quite different. People understand climate and its impact in the building closure. They don't understand that it's different uh, below grade and why. So anyway, uh, that's on there and there's some nice pieces there. Uh, there's a video that's very popular out there called Foundation Installation Effectiveness. It was actually put together by a partner institution, North Dakota State University. And, and I, I basically kind of narrated the thing and host, hosted it in a sense that's out there. And you'll find that if you just type my name and Foundation Installation Effectiveness. And then Louise Goldberg has done a lot of work. And some of that will show up on the site through our Building America and DOE work. We also had started into retrofit. And so something else that we're quite proud of is what we call Project Overcoat. And again, if you just type Project Overcoat, you'll probably get there. And Project Overcoat basically is the idea of taking existing buildings and doing to them exactly what I mentioned earlier on the, what I call the, and we use these terms kind of like loosely, perfect wall, quote unquote perfect. But the idea of this hybrid wall so if you've got an existing building that's partially insulated by today's terms, then we can put an air water vapor barrier on it, add some exterior insulation, and now we've got that same wall on our existing buildings. And of course our existing building stocks, what we really got to put a lot of work into. So there are some uh, pieces in there, some kind of introductory work on the idea of project overcoat. In this case, mostly related to roofs. 
or like for story and a half houses that have massive ice dam challenges, this is a really nice hybrid approach that fixes a, you know, the roof problem on existing homes. It's also a great roof to use for new construction because you bring in the volume, all that volume up there to make something practical out of it, whether it's rooms or storage or ductwork or whatever equipment. So Project Overcoat will get you there. Another one's called Excavationless. That really connects back to uh, our foundation work. Uh, and I, I say this with some caution. It's, I think people, if they look it up, it's how to, how to put exterior insulation on your foundation where it makes the most sense, but you don't want to dig up your entire yard, right? And so it uses a clever process of hydrovac, evacuating a slot along your foundation and then filling that with a hydrophobic foam you know you could use other foam too as long as you have a good water protection you know water control area added as part of it so anyway that those are things that are available there high performance enclosures uh, you know i have presentations floating around in many many places my name and high performance closures or my name and control layers will bring you to a lot of different presentations that i've done i try to make my presentation work pretty uh, transparent and available but we don't carry it all on our site like uh, building science corp well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, your wealth of information and hopefully people will go to some of those sites and we'll add some of that to the show notes as well so that people can get to it easily there. I really appreciate your time and uh, thanks again. You bet. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast brought to you by Build Tank Inc. To see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website at www.btankinc.com. Thank you, Ben Sound, for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it. And you, for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast. You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. If you enjoyed our show and are willing, please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast which will help others find it more easily. Thanks again for listening, and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.